I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Today we are joined by author, writer, documentarian, and musician Jesse Pollock. Jesse is a writer for Weird New Jersey and co-author of the novel Death on the Devil's Teeth, The Strange Murder That Shocked Suburban New Jersey, which is about the death and disappearance of Jeanette De Palma, uh, which you guys will hopefully have just listened to our two-part episode on. And if you haven't, you're going to want to press pause immediately and listen to that right now. <laughs> okay, good. Are you back? Wonderful. Death on the Devil's Teeth is also a podcast for those of you who prefer to listen. Jesse is also the writer-director of the documentary film The Acid King, which details the story of Ricky Casso and the murder that helped launch America's nationwide satanic panic. According to his author bio, Jesse was born and raised in the Garden State of New Jersey. He is married with two children, three dogs, and a couple of cats. Hey, Jesse. Hey, how are you guys doing today? Doing pretty good. Yeah, we're very excited. So first of all, thank you so much for graciously responding to me when I asked the whole internet if they knew (laughs) anyone who worked for Weird New Jersey. (laughs) That's uh, those are hashtag metrics at work. I I guess that would be the term. But yeah, I saw that and I was like, oh, I I may know a couple people that work there. Well, I specifically wanted to speak to you. So it was like very, very faded that you. (laughs) That was the funny thing, too, because it wasn't until like after I had replied to that. And Mm -hmm. then I I checked out your podcast page that I was like, oh, they want to talk about Jeanette because it just showed up under like hashtag weird New Jersey because I follow that because, you know, I'm nosy. Oh, my God. Hashtags work. I'm so happy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, they work all the time. I mean, you know, uh, for the most part, you get like a bunch of junk, but sometimes you will get something important like this in there. And it's like, oh, hey, cool. Along that line, what is it like working for Weird New Jersey? Uh, It's interesting. Um, Finding the right story to um, basically pitch for an article or just to get off the ground for research can take you down a million different routes. Like it's a weird double-edged sword there on one hand is no shortage of bizarre shit to read and write about in our home state. But by the same token, it's like, okay, well what makes us stand above the rest? Like, is this just another abandoned house? You know, there's a million of them or is this, you know, like another guy that's personalizing his property by putting five million bowling balls on the front lawn. Like, what's going to be something that grabs you? And the De Palma case actually ended up being one of them because it was this weird evolution from, I I don't want to say a pre-internet era, but it was definitely a pre-Google era. Uh, It was all the way back in 1997 that a guy wrote into Weird New Jersey, um, and he was actually replying to some coverage about the Wachung Reservation in Union County. Uh, There was a a two or three page article done about that all the way back in, I don't know, maybe issue eight. And this guy wrote in and he said, hey, I loved that feature you did about the Wachung Res, but you're only scratching the surface. There was 
some sort of ritual sacrifice near there back in the 70s. And I want to say a dog brought a body part home. And in 97, I mean, I don't even think InfoSeek was around, let alone Google or Ask Jeeves. Back then, yeah, right? (laughs) Little nostalgia for you there. Mm -hmm. But uh, it wasn't something that was easily like, oh, let me hop on the computer and type in Union County 1970s murder dog, something like that. It was a lot of phone calls and word of mouth. And I wasn't even around for this back then. In 97, I was nine. So this was Mark Moran and Mark Skirman that really got the legs going with this because they're like, wow, that's a that's a that's a different kind of letter. This isn't like, oh, yeah, I used to live in a haunted house or, you know, my uh, front yard has a bunch of rocking horses on it. This is a little different. A, A ritual sacrifice, a dog and a body part. You know, when did this happen? And for the first couple of years, they couldn't even find a name for Jeanette. It was just. It, they honestly thought and when I was talking to them a decade ago, once we started working on this book, I asked the Marks, like, what did you think when you first got this letter? And they said, we thought it was an urban legend. We just thought it was a ghost story. Well, that's what they deal in. So that's that makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. This is not like a true crime periodical. No, not at all. And there was a little bit of true crime in there back in the day. Like we had vaguely mentioned, I'm not sure if we mentioned him by name, but we definitely in the early issues talked about Greg Sanders. And so, because you can't talk about the Wachung Reservation without mentioning Suicide Tower. Oof. And yeah, that I mean, that story could be a, a book right there. It's just such a horrific thing. And people kind of just you know, responded to this one weird little letter that they printed in the next issue by saying, oh, yeah, I kind of remember hearing something about that. Uh, You know, was it in the 80s? Was it was it in the reservation or was it in the quarry? And then finally, a couple years later, an email or a letter came in from someone that said this happened. Her name was Jeanette De Palma and she was found on an altar. Oh, my God. A letter like that, you know, you're going to pay attention to like just she was found on an altar that sends shivers up your spine. Now, again, you may think like, okay, now they had a name. They could hit the ground running. (laughs) No, they the marks went to the Springfield Township Library and they were like, oh, yeah, we can't find anything under that name here. So it wasn't for another couple years where an intern had basically spent. God, I don't know, a few days, a few weeks, maybe even going through old microfilm reels. I was going to say newspapers had to have said something. There had to be some news articles. Well, the problem was with it all being analog, you couldn't just type in Jeanette right. De Palma on a machine and uh, they didn't know the date. They just knew uh, oh. the name of vague location and 70s. Oh, boy. Yeah. So it was a lot of like, I mean, real analog work, old school gumshoe stuff here. And finally, this intern found this coverage from September 1972. And that's what led all the way up to by this point, it's 2003. And that's what led to Mark's first uh, long form article about Jeanette in issue number 20. So where I began this story was 1997. It took all the way from 97 to 03 to get a name, date, location, and the bare bone circumstances of what happened to her. Holy oh, shit. Wow. So that's what writing for Weird New Jersey was like. And and in the middle is where I sort of came in. When I was uh, 
in high school, I started writing in little articles and letters and things like that. Somewhere around, I want to say 2001 was my first piece. So the last 21 years have been this crazy assortment of bizarre (laughs) stories. And we managed to put about half a dozen of the spookiest ones in this uh, little book. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. I love that, like, practical effect style journalism where you're actually making something and and using books and papers and libraries and things like that. And uh, I don't know. Makes for a more interesting story. Oh, it does. It's much more interesting than, oh, yeah, I Googled this. Yeah, that's so fast. Even back in 2012, when I first started, like, the actual work work on the book, there was still some of that microfilm stuff in there because newspapers.com and newspaperarchive.com, I mean, they're they're still not done. They'll never be done, to be honest. But um, I get email alerts from them, and every week it'll be some new thing like, hey, you searched for John List. You know, here's 500 new articles that we've collected from various newspapers around the world. And that actually ended up happening um, after the original edition of the book came out. Like, your listeners probably by now have heard about um, Red, the homeless man that lived in the quarry where the body was found. Yes. Well, all we knew about Red was Ed Kish, uh, the retired patrolman we Mm -hmm. spoke with, told us about him, and he remembered Red's name as being Red uh, Keir. And that's how his name appears in the first edition of the book. It's K-I-E-R. Oh, I didn't even notice that. And I've read both. (laughs) It's one of those weird things that only like obsessive people like me might notice. But like a year and a half after that first edition of the book came out, I suddenly got one of those alerts from I think newspapers.com. And it was saying 13 new articles found for the search prompt Jeanette De Palma. And then all of a sudden... There it is, Drifter Sought in De Palma case, and it was read Kira, K-I-R-A, and I was like, oh my God, now I've got this guy's name, and in the article, it confirmed something Kish told me. He said, I want to say we even had a wanted flyer made up for this guy. Sure enough, the article said yes, they made 7,000 of them and posted them all around Springfield Township, and by using that, I was able to file a very specific... um. Freedom of Information Act request with the Union County Prosecutor's Office basically saying, you know, I want this flyer because they they can't hide behind, oh, no, this is an open investigation. You know, such and such document isn't meant for the public. It's like, no, you guys had these posted up on phone polls. This is a public document. I want a copy of it. And it took them a few weeks, but they got it to me. And that was my first proof that that whole old wives tale that we had been sold since 1999 about oh no uh her her case file was destroyed in a flood nothing is left that was the first proof that it was bullshit because the prosecutor's office found a copy of this somewhere that is wild that is wild it makes your wins feel more like wins though i assume uh it was it was definitely like a really really big moment. It, yeah. When I got that email back and they were like, you know, see attached PDF. Oh my god. I figured it was going to be another blanket like denial. 
Because mm-hmm. I, I I could I could wallpaper my whole house with those goddamn things. Just like, you know, <laughs> uh, upon further review of your request, we have decided that access to the requested information is denied. You know, care Robert Vanderstreet of the Union County Prosecutor's Office. <laughs> He's got it down. I know, you know all of them. I have it memorized. <laughs> I have about 150 of them from oh, 2011 God. up until 2019. And it was just... Okay, well, you know, we'll file this in the the dead letter bin, I suppose. And I open it up, and then all of a sudden, that wanted poster is staring me right in the face with a drawing of Red Kira. Wow. And it was interesting, too, because I don't know if you saw in the um the new edition of the book, but that drawing doesn't really resemble what the people described him as in no. uh, the interviews for the original one. They were like, oh, long red ca- hair with a big bushy beard and all unkempt. No, he looks super generic. He just looks like a Ken doll almost, just a guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he looks like Kung Fu action G.I. Joe or something. He's got the big sideburns, but yeah. that's about it. Yeah, in fact, I um, when I saw that, my first thought was there are no identifying features about this guy. This could literally be anyone. I know. And isn't that scary? Yeah, super scary. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy that they, you know, assuming what Kish told me is true, it's even crazier that they found this guy. Yeah. Now, again, I only have Kish's word to go on with that because one, Sam Calabrese, the detective that was um, in charge of the De Palma investigation, he died back in 2014. But before he did, he basically said like, uh, yeah, I got your letter about wanting to do an interview. I'll only do an interview with you in person if I have the questions beforehand and you guarantee me that I'm not being recorded. I said yes to all of these things and he never replied and then he died two years later. Right. So uh, I have no real insider information from the detective bureau portion of this aside from the case file that I eventually got. And the Union County Prosecutor's Office refuses to give me their file on red aside from the wanted flyer uh, under privacy reasons why do you think that is i don't know honestly um without trying to sound too much like an a cab guy um cops are lazy like they got a lot of work to do and you know you've got someone like me that's been annoying the hell out of them for the past decade like hey i want some more files and they're like i'm not going in the goddamn basement and i'm not getting these files so just tell them it's an open investigation and no that's one part of it other people I've spoken to in town are like, they're really embarrassed about this case. They don't want to okay. admit that the police fucked it up and never solved it. So they, it's just easier for them to tell you it's an open case. You're not entitled to this information. Go away. And they don't care that it makes them look like, you know, this shadowy government organization, almost kind of like uh, what Kevin Costner was up against in the movie JFK. <laughs> Like, they don't care that they look like the villains for not letting some journalists look at some, you know, now 50-year-old pieces of paperwork. They're just like, we don't want to deal with this. I mean, getting getting ahead to spoilers, I mean, at the end of the book I talk about, and and you, you heard the audio on the Devil's Teeth podcast, I called them a year ago, it was mm-hmm. a year, two weeks ago, and said, hey, an incarcerated serial killer says he's ready to confess to this case, all he wants is a steak dinner and a ride to your office, and the damn guy told me, oh, uh, yeah, we got a lot of cases right now, we'll get to it when we can. That that was almost 13 months ago. I've I have not gotten a follow up call. Neither has Jeanette's family. They don't care. They just don't care about this case. Crazy to me. Those files that were supposed to be lost in the flood were there all the time, right? A hundred percent. And not only were they there the whole time, but 
it's funny. I, I go into this a little bit in the book, but it's like, unless you're like really reading between the lines, you might not catch this. And I mean, the royal you. There was a Information Act request that I sent in, I want to say 2013 or 2014. It was a more specific one. Like, I ended up sending two or three a year as I got better and better with learning how the ins and outs of Freedom of, of uh, Information Act law works. And this one, I think I asked for something specific like the crime scene photos after the body was removed. Because I figured, well, maybe they're they're not, you know, cooperating with sending me the photos because, you know, understandably, they don't want gruesome photos of a decomposed teenage girl you know, out there yeah, on the internet. If the De Palmas are okay with you seeing it, they should be. That's their child. Oh, they they, they couldn't give less of a fuck about the De Palma family. Uh. The the De, Palma, the De Palmas have been working with me since 2013 was when I got a hold of, of the first uh, living relative that I interviewed. And I, I mean, you heard on the phone call, I got Jeanette's nephew on the phone yeah. there with me saying like, listen, I don't care if this guy's stipulation is he doesn't want to be in a courtroom. We just want answers. Yeah. You know, we don't want to go through a trial either. They don't care. You know, it's just, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Let me uh, let me backtrack that a bit. They care when the Star Ledger reports on, you know, uh, yeah. a new edition of the book coming out or an anniversary of the case. And then they get they get whoever's the mayor that year to go. We are very uh, we're, we're going to take another look at this case and we are committed to justice. And then you hear when when I call the the prosecutor's office at the beginning of that phone call, I ask who's assigned to the De Palma case. Mm. Uh, actually, no one's assigned to it right now, sir. Uh, you had to have been so furious when you heard that. No, I knew it was coming because I because every time they gave me a denial saying, um, we we spoke with the uh, detectives or the the bureau in charge of this investigation, and it was decided that you know you're being denied for such and such reason. And my follow up question always was, okay, could I have the name of the detective in charge of this investigation so that I could get a comment from them? And they always ignored me. Wow. So I was like, there's no one assigned to this. That's why every time the mayor. In, in Springfield or the chief of police is always like, we haven't forgotten about Jeanette. And it's it's like bullshit. Like, that's your blanket statement you give to the newspapers. So then along those lines, a sort of strange contrast in what is out there in the world about Jeanette's case and then what you have published about Jeanette's case is that her parents are often referred to, not by you, as difficult. They often say that her family is difficult and not communicative. But when I hear from you, the diplomas have been nothing but agreeable and have communicated with you. And it's, in fact, authorities that have been difficult. Would that be like a safe assumption? Why do we think that flip made? Well, it's actually the authorities that started that conception of the De Palma family. Like, uh, if you listen to it's it's either in the podcast, it's definitely in the book. But either way, I talked to retired um, Springfield officers 40, 50 years later. And they all say, oh, yeah, no, uh, the investigation stalled because the family was kind of weird. They they were very yeah. quiet. They weren't cooperative with us. And, uh, you know, they told us she was just a runaway and all this stuff. That's pervasive. That information is everywhere. Mm hmm. Oh, and, 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 and but the, the funny thing, too, is like Kish straight up told me as well. He was just like, we didn't look for kids. 
when they went missing because nine nine times out of ten they were runaways. We'd put out an all points bulletin for them. We'd keep an eye out for their general description, but we were not banging on doors looking for kids because nine times out of ten they got mm. into a fight with their parents, ran away for a weekend, and came home. This yeah. unfortunately was not one of those cases. Now, do I think that they would, if they had taken it a little more seriously, Jeanette would still be alive today? Probably not. Jeanette was probably long dead by the time her mother called the police to report her missing. Sure. But it still paints a very vivid portrait of how the powers that be took missing persons cases seriously back then and still do today. Yeah, I actually read that quotation in our coverage. That's really funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, no, he he pulled no punches about that. With I me. have a lot of I have a lot of questions about that man in about a minute, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna let Leslie talk for a second. <laughs> so yeah, I no doubt she would have been dead by the time mm -hmm. they you know started, even if they got it right after her mom called. But do you think that had they started at least investigating right away, we might know exactly who the killer is? Then we would have had a crime scene, like a real crime scene. <laughs> or even what happened to her if she had drugs in her system. If there was any, if she was the party girl that we uh... are made to believe she was. <laughs> well, that's the interesting point, too. And yeah, there very well could have been additional evidence if they decided like, hmm, there's this girl missing from this neighborhood in Springfield that happens to be right up against the ass end of this forest. Maybe we should check the forest to see if she's dead in there. They never did. It's kind of like the the Shannon Gilbert thing. They they what? It took them like a year to search the marsh for her. That was what five hundred feet away from where she was last seen. Yeah. It's ridiculous. But it all goes back to you know what a lot of people have said to me before. Cops are lazy, especially with cases that they don't feel is a yeah. priority. And you can tell by the things that Kish said to me in those interviews that. They considered the De Palma family, for lack of a better term, white trash. They considered the daughters to be sluts and mm -hmm. troublemakers. So when they heard that one of them went missing, they were like, ah, whatever, you know, she'll be back, you know, in a few days, probably. And when she wasn't and she turned up dead, they said, oh, no, the family was difficult. They didn't give us anything to work with. It seemed like they didn't care. Meanwhile, the family spent the entire goddamn summer not only searching through Union County, um, they were in Manhattan looking for her. Yeah. So uh, there, there is a lot at play with the societal dynamic there that goes beyond the slut shaming almost of a victim. And it was imaginary Ooh. slut shaming, too, because Jeanette did not have that reputation. If anything, it was her older sister, Gwen. Yeah, we, we do talk about that briefly because it mm -hmm. seems as though... I mean, they are sisters. They do look very much alike. It seems to me oh, as yeah. though they just substituted one sister for the other because Gwen definitely had issues with drugs and she did run around with boys and she did have run-ins with the police and maybe she was in the back of a car. But they're not the same person. <laughs> you can't... No. You can't just make a substitution. But it seems to me that that's what happened. But also what I'm struck by is the confidence with which... The authorities seem to have dismissed her, especially Ed Kish, who just said the things he said with absolute authority, even though there were no facts behind it. He has a, and I mean, 
I don't want to go down too hard against Ed to the point where listeners who aren't as familiar with the case as you and I are mm-hmm. might go, it was Kish that did it. No, even though, I don't think Even though the thought, the thought kind of crossed my mind at one point. I was oh. like, man, he really doesn't seem to fucking like this girl. For no, some he reason. does not. <laughs> but the context there is also is at the time that this happened, Ed Kish was a patrol officer. And I think Ed Kish, the 24-year-old patrolman, May have mm-hmm. talked a little bit differently about this case, but by the time I got to him, I was talking to Ed Kish, the retired juvenile officer in his 60s. So his opinion is kind of colored by about 30 years of dealing with problem kids. So he he just doesn't seem to like teenagers. So No, he like... really doesn't <laughs> seem to like Jeanette. I was very struck with that upon like my first introduction to your work on her is just how much ire is in the things that he sees almost angry about it it's, it's and i couldn't put my thumb on like why is this guy so to have such a thing against her he's in denial about a lot of things too i um only got into this very quickly in the book because at the end of the day like it's interesting but it doesn't really lead anywhere it just keeps kind of circling the drain but um and and you saw this in the original edition of the book he insisted to me he was like You know, I was called away from some other part of duty that I was doing that day as a patrol officer. I got up to the the devil's teeth and the body was there. I was there for five minutes. Okay, what did you do for that five minutes while everybody else was securing the scene? Yeah. Uh, well, there there was a pocketbook next to the body. I I opened up the pocketbook. I looked for drugs. There were no drugs in there. I tried to find a wallet to ID her. There was nothing in there. So I set the pocketbook. Um, down on the ground and I went home. Where's that pocketbook? They don't have the actual purse, do they? They just have the contents. They never found it. That's the weird thing too. Kish insisted to me for 10 years, he was like, I held the pocketbook and there was nothing in it and yada, yada, yada. (laughs) And then when I finally got the case file in 2020 or 2021, it, the the files are incredibly clear. They they found the contents of the purse dumped out in a pile next to the body, but they never found the purse. And they looked for it for two days, like literally crawling on their hands and knees in the quarry because there's high grass, there's brush, there's yeah. dead limbs, all this. This was not like the friendly woods like behind a development. I lay out the whole ecosystem of this quarry. So everybody is very familiar with what they're walking into in this crisis. It's scene. another world. Yeah, it is, it is. It's actually very eerie. I've been in there four times, I want to say, through the course of my research. And the thing that strikes me the most is like, you're right up against um a major highway and a major intersection. But once you cross the tree line into this place, everything becomes really quiet. And I don't know what the the science of the acoustics are there, but when you get in there, it's very still. It's very eerie, even without knowing like, oh, a girl was killed here. So, again, it's not like when when people talk about a girl that was found on a mountain or a girl that was found in the woods. We're not talking about some like Bob Ross painting here. This is just like a pile of brush with trees in the middle of it. So they made a very concerted effort to try to find this purse. It was never located. I've got photographs that were taken in 2012 at the Evidence Bureau in Springfield. The purse is not among them. It's not listed in the evidence inventory receipts. The purse was never found. I went back to Ed Kish about this, and he was like, that's bullshit. I held it in my hand. Does he have it in his car or something? Where is it? <laughs> well, I, I and I sent him all of the, uh, the files, too. I said, Ed, they never found it. Well, I don't care what the files said. I, I held it. 
then you have it. Where is it? (laughs) Okay. You're the only one who has it. Why do you have it? But here's the weird thing about that, too. And here's where the this little diversion into the missing case file took a really interesting turn. Um, There was another retired officer I spoke with while writing the book named Peter Hammer. And he had told me, I want to say like six months after I did the first interview with him, he called me up and he's like, hey, I just wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas. By the way, um, I was back in Springfield visiting friends and family and I stopped into the uh, the police department and they told me, oh, yeah, uh, we found Jeanette's case file and her purse in the attic of the old Girl Scout house. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, I, I guess you rattled some cages with your research. They say they found it. So I sent another Freedom of Information Act request directly to the Springfield Police Department. And this guy that was handling this, uh, Judd Levinson, um, I believe he's a de- he was a detective lieutenant at the time. He was like, no, uh, the case file is is missing. All the evidence is missing. Uh, our building was buried under nine feet of raw sewage during um, Hurricane Floyd in 1999. And even if it wasn't, we couldn't give it to you anyway because it's an open case. Fast forward to 2021 when I finally get the case file or the bulk of it at the very least uh, after a year and a half of bugging them from a 2019 information act request that inventory list that I mentioned a few moments ago from 2012 where they took all of her like her her sandals her fingernail clippings her compact all that stuff um when they took it out and rephotographed it guess whose signature was on that inventory list Judd Levinson the same Judd Levinson that would tell me 14 months later, oh, it doesn't exist. It was all destroyed. So I've got him lying on official police letterhead. And I sent all of that information over to the chief of police, John Cook, and to whoever the acting mayor of Springfield was at the time. They didn't even bother to reply to me. So oh like, that's why, you know, I'm uh, to your listeners who may not know the ins and outs of this, it might sound like, damn, this guy really hates the mayor and the cops over there. Well, this is why. Because then they'll go, you know, they'll do, um, you know, like the Star Ledger or the New York Daily News will do uh, an article about, you know, my the work The candlelight vigil. They do that too. I saw oh, a that of those. bullshit with Ed Salzano, that freak. Oh boy. Yes. I thought he was related to her and then with like very little, because when I just, when I told Leslie, I'm like, we're going to cover this case. It's New Jersey. We're in New Jersey. I mm-hmm. want to get into it. There's a lack of information. There seems to be two totally different stories. Like it's a satanic ritual and no, 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 it's a crime scene. <laughs> so I, I want to take a look at it. So the first thing I did was find that Justice for Jeanette page because it does pop up pretty quickly. And I thought, yeah. well, who is this man? Do I reach out to him? Is he related to the De Palmas? And he really makes it look like he is. But at the end of the day, he's not. And then there's no. like a hundred photographs of a blonde woman holding Jeanette's framed photo. And I thought, well, who is who is this? An Instagram model who thinks she's a private investigator. <laughs> I found that out and I was stunned because I was like, where? I don't understand what the connection is here. And then I found you and your, you know, breadth of work, which is way more and obviously focused and, and done well. well and I was like, you. oh, no, no, that's, <laughs> of course, that's, that's the avenue I want to go down. But I just couldn't help but wonder, like, what is this guy's endgame? What is happening? <laughs> I first encountered him back in 2013. 
he had reached out to Mark and myself saying like, oh, hey, uh, my name's Ed Salzano. I'm a private investigator living in Springfield. Yeah, you know, like everybody seems to think they can just call themselves a private investigator. And it's like, no, you have to be licensed. But I'm anyway, gonna, I am a private investigator. It's like you're an armchair sleuth. <laughs> Not you, him. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's okay. I am too. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, but we're honest about it. We don't go out there yeah. pretending to be cops. Oh, no, absolutely not. That's insane. Which is what this guy does. He he has this very calculated manipulation tactic where he throws around stuff like, I am a private investigator. I have F I work with the FBI. No, he doesn't. You know what his work with the FBI is? He was on a reality TV show with Donnie Brasco, Joe Pistone, back in 2006. It ran for eight episodes and then it was canceled. You can only find one online, by the way. Yeah, because no one gave a shit about it. <laughs> it was a dumb show. It was a failed reality TV show. It could have been a great show. It doesn't make anything. It doesn't give anything else more merit. And I, in my experience, mm -hmm. and this is just a testament to it, most of the actual true crime community is a lot of people who are more than happy to talk to one another. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because we're always looking for more information because nine times right. out of ten, there is something blocking information. So, yeah, comparing notes, I'm all about it. And I initially... Th that's how I met this guy because he was just like, oh yeah, private investigator. Oh, I've got FBI connections. Ever see Donnie Brasco? I know him. And you know, if there's <laughs> no, you don't. if there's anything I can do to be of use to you and Mark, because I really want to help. And I'm like, okay, well, why do you care about this case so much? Out of curiosity. Oh, I grew up in Springfield. I was five when this happened, and it always affected me because I couldn't go trick or treating that year. And I'm like. All right, whatever, you know, uh, you know, I'm not going to demean that too much. I'm just some guy that read about it in a magazine years later. I can't yeah. lay any bigger claim to the story than that. But it was like, OK, well, um, at the time, Mark and I were very heavily looking into Otto Nilsson, the primary suspect from our first book. Wow, that one is a lot. Yeah. So get this shit. Um, I said to him, I was like, okay, well, you, you have FBI connections. We are having a heck of a time trying to find the criminal history of this guy. We were getting blocked with privacy, you know, all the stuff, even though the guy's dead and the privacy act of 1974 says, Hey, if you're dead, you've got no right to privacy in America, but cops don't care about the law anyway. So I was like, can you use your private investigation skills and FBI connections to get the criminal history of this guy, Nilsson? And he goes, uh, wait, Otto Nilsson, uh, uh, from South Orange, from Maplewood? And I'm like, yeah. Wait, well, he, he's one of your suspects? And I'm like, uh, currently, yeah, he was arrested for killing Joan Kramer, who was murdered the same week, only six miles away. Oh, um, I don't know if I would be a good fit to help you then. Um, I went to high school with his two sons. <gasps> See, that's what he never tells anyone when he's just like, fuck Mark Moran and fuck Jesse Pollock. They're exploiters. Don't listen to them. Listen to me. I actually know the family. I'm the real investigator. He doesn't like us because the father of two of his friends in high school was a suspect in our book. He never okay. tells anyone that because he's smart enough to know, well, that makes me look shady. That's yeah. why when when you he has like uh, glommed on to the satanic 
um, theory because it's like, well, shit, I can't, I can't make the serial killer theory my thing because then I have to acknowledge my friend's father may have killed her. So let me take the hardline Christian angle of, no, she was killed by Satanists. That's why his page is filled with all this QAnon and MAGA shit. Oh, I didn't even mm-hmm. notice that. I didn't go that oh, far. Yeah. Well, oh half goodness. of it gets deleted by Facebook and, okay. and, you know, and he dirty <laughs> deletes everything. Like I talked about uh, one of the only reasons I put this in the book and talked about it was because it's like he fucking deletes everything the second he's called out on it. But uh, last year he just went off the fucking deep end and started talking about it. He's like, Jeanette was killed by her parents. They did it as a Halloween yeah. publicity stunt. What? And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? First of all, you don't slam the family. Everybody knows that. Like, what are you doing? No, unless you got a really good reason. Unless there's yeah. like, uh, yeah, the dad was seen with a shovel and a bag of lime after the, the daughter went missing. Oh, fine. Yeah. Oh, man. That is wild. But also, then I have one more question about this guy, and then we'll talk about somebody else. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it says, I think it's in your book or and i can't i read so many sources it's also in on his stuff that mm-hmm. he he is in possession of like a box of evidence because no, Jeanette's nephew gave it to him it was like willed to him so he has like stuff files and, and evidence and stuff this is where the story gets i got i it doesn't get tricky but i have to be very sensitive with the way that i say this but i mean it it it's discussed in the new edition of the book as well. So I'm not talking about anything for the first time here, but that nephew he's talking about is a guy named John Bancy, who Mm -hmm. was also only five years old when Jeanette went missing. I'm not trying to invalidate his relationship with his aunt, but he likely has, he likely had very few memories of her and decided that, and and, and, uh, this dynamic that I'm relating to you was related to me by other members of the De Palma family. They were like, at some point when John got out of the military, he decided that he was going to make himself the family spokesman on the De Palma case. Mm. And that came to a head in 2004 when Mark Moran and Mark Skirman interviewed him for issue 22 of Weird New Jersey magazine. And that lengthy interview is, um, reprinted in the in both editions death on the devil's teeth actually and so he willingly talked to the marks and he actually willingly talked to me at first when when i told him that i was writing a book about it and i wanted to interview him he was all about it he was Mm -hmm. just like oh yeah you know uh you know maybe we can get together sometime and uh you know i can show you some files that i have on my aunt and uh you know if you solve this thing there's a reward in it for you Okay. And I thought that was a really weird thing to say to a journalist that you've never met before. Yeah. Especially at the time, I was 24 years old. So it's like, you're, you're going to tell a kid, like, oh, yeah, here's some, let me dangle some money in front of you, kid, if you can go solve this for us. And I just straight up told him, I said, well, I'm not in this for the money. Anyone who's becoming a writer is crazy to be in it for the money. There's no money in writing. Nope. I said, <laughs> I, I just want to help you and your family get some answers because this case is very unusual even by mm-hmm. unsolved crime standards like yeah. the police cover up angle the satanic rumors uh, the the case file being it's like what the hell like when we started writing it and we were doing the promotion everybody compared it to like this is like a season of true detective like it's got that weird like yeah, cinematic no, sure. intrigue it definitely does so this guy basically you know 
he seemed to be all about meeting with me and we were going to meet, but unfortunately, uh, a little thing called Hurricane Sandy got in the way. So many hurricanes. Yeah, it, it is. Now that you now that you mentioned that, there is a lot of hurricane issues, but it is a coastal state. So what are you going to do? Yes. But um, I was I was in Jersey the week that that hurricane hit, and I literally could not get to the side of Union County he was on. I'm guessing oh, yeah. he he took offense to that, but but for whatever reason, um. Oh, and this gets back to Salzano, because this is where those stories intersect. When I told Salzano that, you know, Nilsson was our prime suspect and he revealed that he was friends with Nilsson's kids, he he told me, he goes, well, I'm no longer comfortable um, working with you and Mark, you know, if, if that's who you're looking at. Uh, so if it's all the same to you, I'm going to take the information that you shared with me and I'm going to go do my own thing. And all oh. I said... All I said to this guy was, I said, hey, listen, I just want to let you know some of the things that I shared with you are like our intellectual property. Those are discoveries we made ourselves. So like whatever you're going to do, just make sure you don't like try and say you dug this stuff up. We shared it with you. And immediately he was like, well, you got a lawyer. Oh, God. And I'm like, what? And he goes, you sound like a lawyer right now. You got a lawyer. I know a lot of lawyers, which he doesn't. That's why he represented himself in court. Oh, that's not hmm. <laughs> uh, after after, by the way, launching a GoFundMe, uh, begging everyone for money. Oh, this is going towards legal representation. And then he pocketed it and represented himself in court. Talk about a scumbag move. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just wow. like everything else. That, he's been doing GoFundMe since GoFundMe, you know, was invented. At first, he said, oh, we're going to put up a billboard in Springfield on the highway asking for tips. That never happened. Then it was, we're going to put a memorial plaque at uh, Jonathan Dayton High School for Jeanette. And then a newspaper found out about that and they called Jonathan Dayton. They're like, we never heard of this guy. And no, we're not putting up a plaque. So all these people, and, and this is what pissed me off the most about it too, was I was starting to get messages from like well-meaning older people on social media, like people I'd interviewed for the book that are in their 60s and 70s. And they're like, mm -hmm. oh, we, we saw the page for the people you're working with. We donated for you. Uh. I'm like, what? And they're like, justice for Jeanette. It's so great what you're doing. And I'm like, justice for Jeanette <gasps> is not me and Mark. That is some TV guy. And they're like, oh, oh, we didn't know. So I'm like, this guy is conning elderly people like some Saul Goodman bingo night shit to get money by like, he's always trying to lead other people into believing something he's not, whether it's an investigator, a cop, an FBI agent, um, working with me and Mark, he's none of these things. And so anyway, um, once he went off to start doing his own thing and started slandering me, John Bancy, I guess was impatient because he didn't get to meet with me right away and hooked up with this guy. And this okay. guy filled his head with like, oh, we're going to get you on TV. I'm going to get the FBI in on this. Just, you know, I just need to look at the documents you have. And, you know, we're going to solve this together. I've got TV connections. And the, all the documents that John Bancy had were literally Jeanette's death certificate, photocopies of two letters she sent to her sister, which are erroneously referred to as her diary. Uh, there's a whole episode on the Devil's Teeth podcast where we go into that. And 
I think like the cover sheet of her autopsy report. And that's why, you know, that's all you will ever see in the photos on the justice for Jeanette social, social media pages. When he says, I have all the documents, I have the files. And I know that he doesn't because if he did, he'd be posting them everywhere. Yeah. The, the crime scene stuff, like you guys have the, with the um body redacted like images mm-hmm. and that's the only you guys have it. That's there's nobody else that has that stuff out there or the sketch of the crime scene or like any of that stuff. That that only appears associated with you guys. So yeah, I don't know. Be, because we were the ones that spent ten years yeah. filing these information act requests, which literally anyone can do. But people that want to get rich quick don't want to put the work in. And the scummiest thing that this guy did was once we got all of that released. This is how much of an idiot this guy is. He's like posting like photos that had like the weird New Jersey watermark that he took from the weird New Jersey website, you know, saying like, uh, Springfield finally gave me the case file after all the work I've done, you know? And I'm like, no, they didn't. Like, and I even posted on my social media. I'm like, here's the letter from the union County prosecutor's office approving my information request. Your name's not on it. Dummy. So he he's literally just trying to get back on TV. But yeah, that was his whole when he says I'm working with the family. He worked with John okay. Bancy for three years before John Bancy went crazy and killed himself. And I know that's like sounds like a really terse thing to say. But John Bancy spent the final three years of his life like showing up at my co-author. Like my, my co-author, Mark, he's in a band and they play a lot in Union County at events and you know, concerts and festivals and stuff. This guy, uh, John Bancy, showed up at the uh, the Liberty Tavern uh, a few years before he died and in front of 200 people said, you don't fuck with the United States Marines because he was an ex-Marine, supposedly. He's like, you don't fuck with the United States Marines. I'm going to fucking kill you for what you put in that book. Oh, God. Yeah, all we put in the book was the same interview that he consented to eight years prior in 2004. So... He had to be forcibly removed by the bartender with a baseball bat that <gasps> night. And then this guy, uh, this guy was calling people up and saying like, oh, my God, all my clothes are infested with mites. People I know are infested with mites. And then all the while, this guy, Ed Salzano, is feeding this guy like the most paranoid information that I think contributed to him killing himself. That's a tragedy. He's telling him he's like Lieutenant Michael Aquino of the Temple of Set. His wife, Lilith Sinclair, lived in New Jersey in the 70s, which is true. Um, you know, but that's no big secret. Lilith Sinclair gave an interview to the Star Ledger, uh, and it's in the book, saying, like, yeah, no, this, this, I'm sorry, this does not look like the tenets of like actual Satanism. Satan's Satanists don't do this. No, 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 no. But of no. course, conspiracy people will be like, of course she said that. But anyway, he he's Bancy is getting fed this stuff by Salzano, like, you know, this high ranking uh, member of the military who's also a Satanist. His wife killed her and they're going to come after you. They're going to kill your daughters. And oh so what, God. Did, what does he do? He goes and kills himself in a, in a Springfield uh, motel room uh, like five years ago, I think it was. And that ended any connection that Salzano had with the De Palma family because the rest of the De Palmas all think he's an idiot. He's a con artist. And that's why he wow. always goes after them saying the family killed her, oh, you know, because sad. they won't work with him. Oh, okay. That's wild. That's really sad too. I mean, it's yeah. unfortunate. It's crazy, isn't it? Well, there's an actual casualty involved in it. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the worst part. Oh yeah. Oh God. Okay. 
Sorry for that long um, (laughs) excursion there because I'm always like, I am always very hesitant to talk about this stuff because I never wanted my coverage of this case to be, you know, we're going to give you the drama and and all this stuff because it's just a distraction. Like he's, he has not brought anything that has benefited this case to being solved or, or, you know, like maybe a little bit of public awareness through social media, but is Eh. that public? Is that awareness any good if it's fake information? Like the army teamed up with Satanists to kill Jeanette as a Halloween stunt and her parents approved it. Like, what are you fucking talking about? Well, in addition to that, there's a a certain, I don't know, gravitas that goes along with those justice board pages because nine times out of 10, and I've spoken to a lot of people who Mm -hmm. run them. They are related to the person. They're related to the victim. And that's um, valid. Yeah, when we covered Caitlin Akins, her family runs her page. Casey Prim's sister runs her page. Um, Like a couple of the other missing cases that we're working on right now, their, their family runs this page. And so you see, if you're a member of any kind of like true crime circle and you, you see that, you go, oh, that's, that's Jeanette Palma's family. And that was my first thought because of that, because every tie I've had to those Justice Four pages has been Mm -hmm. a direct familial tie. It hasn't been someone like random. So it's very surprising that, I mean, that's part of like the wool you can pull over eyes, I suppose. But I just find that kind of, um, I don't know, manipulative, I guess. Him being able to lay claim to that first is largely my fault because, you know, I started working on this book back in early 2012, late 2011. So that's three years before serial before it became like you know if you're going to be an advocate for a case through you know writing a book or Mm -hmm. making a podcast you need to claim all the social media so that never really occurred to me like because i thought well no who the hell am i to make a, a social media page for jeanette that's for her family to do if they want so well yeah it usually is too yeah, but this guy went and, and jumped on it right away before he even, you know, met anyone from Jeanette's family. So unfortunately, he got the drop on me there, but only because he was completely unscrupulous with what he wanted to do. Well, there's a real shift in the in the world of true crime right now, wherein it is it is much more advocacy and victim based than it has been in the past. There are a lot of people out there that claim these cases because they they sincerely do care but they kind of care a little too much. Like I've run into a lot of these people back when I was on web sleuths. Oh like, gosh. Okay. I helped solve a missing persons case on there. What? I was uh very active with trying to help with the princess doe investigation for a few years. Oh. Um, that was actually going to be my follow-up to death on the devil's teeth. Unfortunately, every publisher we pitched it to said, no one cares about a dead girl from New Jersey from 40 years ago. That's very That's sad. Not like, true. I, I just published a book about a dead girl from New Jersey f- from 40 years ago, and I've got three TV networks banging on my door all the time asking for the rights to it. I always tell them no because all they care about is the Satan shit. But I know. That's the through line in most of this case. Like Most of the headlines you're going to find are all about like how it's this satanic ritual murder, which, first of all, that's a phrase that doesn't exist. That's yeah. not a thing that happens. It's, it's, it's not real. <laughs> no. And second of all, it, it, it's hardly the most interesting part of it, I think. Mm-hmm. So, well, I don't no, because it's so easy. And we'll get into that in a second, too, because it's so, it was so easily dismissed once we got the crime scene photos. It's just like, which you found- saw, right? You saw like yeah. the straight up crime scene photos without the edits. 
Um, no, th- okay. that was that was the concession that the and I and I told this in my um uh Information Act request. I said, listen, I will happily accept redacted Got photos it. because I did not care about seeing Jeanette's corpse. The the corpse. In the absence of gunshot wounds, uh, knife wounds, st- like tangible evidence on the body itself, it didn't really matter. Jeanette, they don't know how she died. Their best guess is she was strangled. Well, that's everybody's best guess when they can't figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's always what they throw at the wall to see if it sticks. Which I'm wondering if there was anything at the autopsy. And the guy that con- that conducted the autopsy is long dead, so I'll never know. But I wonder if he saw maybe something on the hyoid bone that he that's didn't what note I thought. in the report. Is it yeah. broken? But that's the thing. The hyoid bone is pretty stocked. It might not even have really been there. Mm-hmm. We see, It was really funny, as I was saying this to Leslie before we started recording, well, we're also friendly with the state medical examiner who we've interviewed for our Ripper coverage. And mm-hmm. I was like, ah, oh, I should have also had him come in and been like, what, given these details, what would you have done? Yeah. What information would be valuable? The whole thing with the Princess Doe case and the weird side of advocacy was when I was working on this with uh, uh, Stephen Spears, the lead detective on the case at the time, and Lieutenant Eric Kranz, who was the first detective on the case, um, it, it they were trying everything they could. They really wanted to solve this case. So uh, unfortunately, that led to them talking to people like they were talking to this one woman. I won't name her because, again, I'm not trying to start drama, but this is just a story for context. She said, oh, I'm a victim's advocate. I have this this organization, which, of course, she was the only member of. And uh, she said she was also a psychic. And they were at the point where, like, it's been 30 something years. We need to solve this. We can't turn anyone away. So they told me while I was interviewing them, they're like, oh, you should really go speak with this woman because she's really good at what she does. You know, maybe if you talk to her, you'll get some ideas for stuff to look into. And I I interviewed her and, and very, very quickly, it became obvious that she was insane. Like she was talking to me. She's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm actually beginning the process to petition the government to legally adopt Princess Doe. And I'm like, huh? you you can't adopt a dead body. They don't no. even know. Who, even if you could, they don't know her name. Oh, I know. But, uh, you know, I know a lawyer and we're going to try. And when I get legal possession of her. Um, I'm going to have her interned in Arlington National Cemetery as the national memorial for our missing children. Oh, okay. Which, I mean, you know, in in her demented mind, that sounds like a real noble thing to do. But, you know, it's very hard to try to explain to someone who, one, thinks they're psychic, that you cannot adopt a pile of bones. She could not grasp her head around that. But, you know, that's the dark side of people, you know, like, Anyone could call themselves a victim advocate now. So anyone that watches Investigation Discovery uh, uh, eight hours too long each day now can go go on the internet and go, I'm a victim's advocate and here's my organization, this Facebook page I made. And it's just, it's a weird time for true crime because you really have to, you know, tread some bizarre waters to find out who is doing legitimate work and what research can be trusted because anyone can put anything on a website nowadays and i mean and and it don't get me wrong i'm not immune to any of this stuff i mean look at me i just had to go back and rewrite my first fucking book because <laughs> of how outdated some of that information became because once the book got out there 
and more people started reading it and more newspaper clippings um, from 1972 became available and more, um, you know, the first weekend alone that the book came out, I was getting dozens of phone calls from people like, hey, uh, I lived in Springfield at the time this happened. I knew the family. Like, do you want to talk? I, I had a, a guy from the Essex County Prosecutor's Office call me while I was on the book tour going, Hey, uh, you know, uh, I was, uh, going to the beach for my summer vacation with my wife. We're retired now. I went into Barnes and Noble. I saw your book. I was like, oh, this looks like a really interesting book. And I'm flipping through it. And it's like, oh, I worked on this case when I was in the prosecutor's office. Oh my God. No. Is this how Robin got involved? Like called yeah. in with her tidbit of information? The, uh, the lady that most likely picked her up while she was hitchhiking? Yes. Yeah, yeah, she contacted you and Mark Moran, right? Or did she contact no. the police first? I've read a lot of things in the past few yeah. weeks. Sometimes did, they blur together. Oh, no, no, no. You're <laughs> fine. That was a revelation that came when we finally got the case file. We filed that Information Act request in October 2019. And, okay. like, of course, every month I would get a form letter saying, hey, listen, um, we're considering your request. We got a lot going on right now. We need an extension because um, FOIA law basically says you have to give an official response. It could be anything. It, it could be we're giving you files or, hey, I farted today. You have to give some sort of response within 30 business days. Most police departments ignore that. But for whatever reason, uh, Union County was just like, hey, listen, I know it's been 30 days. We need some more time. We'll get back to you. Then COVID hit. So everything was shut down. So it took all the way until February 2021 for them to get me the bulk of those files. Okay. And in that file was her affidavit. This woman named Robin, she asked So me her information was always there? It was always there. And it was a game changer because not only was... Because we, we were always under the impression that she was last seen leaving Donna Blattis' house after knocking on the door looking for a ride. Yeah, at like 2 o'clock. Yeah, and that's why everybody came up with that stupid theory. Oh, Donna Blattis, she was having this drug-filled party and Jeanette died, and you know? And 50 teenagers, not a single one ever said a single word about anything. I don't buy it. Yeah, 50 teenagers decided to wait until nightfall, carry her corpse up a 50-foot mountain, and leave it there when they could have just dumped it in the creek that you have to jump over to get to that mountain if you're coming from the roadside, which they would have been because the only other way in would have been on the quarry side. And that was an active... And that's the other weird thing, too. It was an active construction site at the time. Yeah, it was dangerous. You can't... You couldn't be climbing around in there. You still kind of can't. Well, there, there's that, but there's also because it's been abandoned for so long that a lot of people's memories get fuzzy and go, yeah. oh, yeah, she was found next to an abandoned rock quarry, and that's why she was never found. Then it's very quickly we disprove that. No, there there was a quarry blast the day after she went missing, a dynamite blast. It was very active. So <sighs> that's why I never bought this bullshit police theory of they were in the woods partying, she OD'd, and everyone panicked, and they left her there. They just so very desperately wanted her to have OD'd and been, like, this bad kid. I don't know why that is, though. It's good for cops. Murders yeah. are a lot of work. They're a lot of paperwork. And if you don't solve them, the taxpaying 
you know, citizens of your hoity-toity town that's, you know, uh, 20 minutes outside of Manhattan get mad at you. And then they don't vote to raise police budgets, et cetera, et cetera. But if a teenager, if some hippie kid ODs in the woods, oh, boomer parents love that shit because then they get to go point their fingers at their neighbors and be like, see, we're the good upstanding people. Our kids don't OD in the woods or we need to give the cops more money to get these dope fiend kids off the street and all that. It was perfect for them. You know, like I mentioned earlier, they all but canceled Halloween that damn year. And and it criminalized. Do you know how many people I spoke to that were like, this criminalized teenagers. We never locked our doors before Jeanette Palma died. I can see that. And now all of a sudden we had to lock our doors for the first time because we were told that a murderous gang of satanic teenagers <laughs> were, were wandering the streets of Mountainside and Springfield. It was ridiculous, but, you know, and it all could have been avoided if the cops had either released a photo of the crime scene after her body was removed to say, look, we didn't find shit around her. There was no altar. No, it's very obviously not what they said it was. No, there was no altar. There was no coffin around. There was just a bunch of branches that fell. It's logs. And you could tell those logs had been there a long time. They were not deliberately arranged oh, yeah. around her. We heard everything. And that's just the conservative version of not politically conservative, but, you know, a uh, descriptive conservative yeah. version of what was found around her. We heard everything from, oh, yeah, we heard that she was found on this on a pentagram. Yeah, that's a big one that she was found on a pentagram. And that there were like little animals were were hanging from trees and then there was another one oh no there were glass bottles filled with murdered rats next to her body <laughs> that's comical one of the cops that worked the um the greg sanders case he said oh yeah i remember hearing about that they found all that voodoo shit around that girl and i'm like voodoo shit and he's like yeah they cut up chickens around her or something and it's oh like no God. he's remembering the cut up chickens that were over in the Wachung reservation and right. that's why people it's not that people were all like a bunch of morons back then sure there there's always going to be some dumb townies but people were ready to believe in the satanic shit back then because of all the weird stuff that was being found in the Wachung reservation now does that mean there were cults meeting in there? No, it was probably doper teenagers that listened to a little too much Alice Cooper or Black Sabbath or read The Exorcist one too many times and decided I'm going to cut up a chicken next to the water tower and and spook people. Well, yeah, I mean, we've said this. I Leslie, I think we've said this a million times. At least I know I say it every at least teen girl. This might be appropriate for all teenager goes through the like witch phase. Mm hmm. Everyone has, we all have it where we're like, maybe I like black magic today. And for a little while, you're kind of weird. <laughs> and, and and dudes have that too. Like, hey, maybe I'm in my Dungeons and Dragons phase or magic. Oh, that is Gathering. a good parallel. <laughs> or I, I'm a metalhead and I'm into Ozzy, devil horns, bro. It's just, mm -hmm. it's kids. It's a kid thing. Does that mean they're going around and cutting each other up in the woods in the name of Satan? No. Well, likewise, if it really was some like cutting up chickens is like a Santeria thing. It's not even mm -hmm. like linked to any sort of satanic, like, I don't know, anti-Christian or whatever you want to mm -hmm. call Satanism. It's not linked to any of that. It would be linked to a different religion with totally different values. And the chickens would have just been part of a part of their like prayer or something. It's, right. It has it's nothing usually like a cleansing. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and to give you a good idea of how much the, the cops in Springfield knew about that stuff back then, when I was interviewing Ed Kish, when he was talking about the uh, Watch Hung Reservation, he goes, oh, yeah, they were always finding Santa Maria shit up there. Oh, no. Yeah. And then for my second book, the, the whole Ricky Casso thing. In like 2017, like the original uh, officers from that case, who I was interviewing by phone and email, they were sending me uh, clippings from the New York Post from that week saying like, oh, see, it's still going on. And it was someone had found a cow tongue nailed to a tree in a park in Long Island. I'm like, that's a... that's some sort of like Caribbean voodoo thing. I'm like, that's not Satanism. Oh, I don't know about that. This looks like Satanism to me. I'm like, no, that's like a, that's like a blessing thing. Or, or I think it's like you wrap a cow tongue in something and it, and it stops someone from lying about you. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not like well-versed in world (laughs) religions, but I know enough to know that this was not a satanic killing. I mean, it was, it was a maybe, like a very small maybe back when we didn't know what was found around her. But mm-hmm. we only kept that door open because we were like, something had to have been found around this girl for this rumor to get the legs that it did. But there was nothing. No. She was found in the ground. Not even in the ground, laying on the ground. No, no attempt to bury her. No. Nothing was staged. It was just a body in the woods. Which is why I'm so surprised that the police leaned so heavily on her being dumped out there, too. Because wouldn't you cover that body up? You wouldn't just throw it on the top of something and be done. I, it just doesn't feel like logic to me. But, uh, okay, I'll no. give you the benefit of the doubt. Teenagers aren't always full of logic. Fine. And there is always the theory that the reason it was covered up so heavily is because it was a police officer's child that was involved which we 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 debunked that almost immediately and it okay. wasn't just a police officer the original rumor and we're new jersey had gotten several letters about this going all the way back to the early 2000s oh everyone that it says was, that it's a cop's son that, well it was the chief's son they were very specific Ooh. about that they were like it was covered up because it was one of chief parcel's sons that did it and we looked it up the sons were 10 years older than jeanette they were not even in the same social circles and one of them was living in Florida working for an airline. So not him. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other one, I don't think even lived in Springfield anymore. He was 24. I think he was married and living on his own. There was nothing to tie okay. them together. And Kish gave me a lot of that information, too. And I was able to go and, and cross-reference that. And yeah, public records, their age, everything. They were not in that circle. But the thing about Kish that always confused me is it's like, his total uh, foot dragging when it comes to accepting that Red may have been a good suspect. Oh, oh. no, he, he was just some caddy in the woods. It's like, well, he his camp. I'm like, Kish, you found his camp. It was 150 feet away from where her body was found. She would have mm-hmm. smelled it. I mean, well, he would have oh, smelled it. Yeah. I got so mad at that because the science, and we do talk about it a little in the podcast, the science mm-hmm. behind the how far the scent of human decomposition can be detected to the human nose is way, way, way. Ed Kish says, what, like 75 feet, the odor of a dead body will go? That is patently false. Uh, The odor of a dead body to a human, mind you, Mm -hmm. a human body, goes about a quarter mile, according to most uh, war veterans who would know, who are like Mm -hmm. kind of a resource for that. And, And according to any kind of particle science that goes along with it, um, which we talked about when we talked about Kristen Smart, yeah. about like how you can detect certain cadaver stuff. But like, that is not, that, mm, that is not true. 
even a little bit. But this goes back to what I was originally saying about Ed Kish. The authority with which he seems to say that is wild to me. And I don't understand where it comes from. Yeah. And, and he wasn't in the detective bureau at the time either. Like at one point you had even. I thought he was a detective. Gotten, yeah. Because he spoke with that authority and he was later in the detective bureau as a juvenile officer. But at the time, Ed Kish was a patrol officer who, by his own admission, was only at the crime scene for five minutes. And he was also absolutely convinced. He was like, oh, I we called Jeanette Party Girl at the station all the time. We were uh... always pulling her out of the back of cars at Echo Lake Park. And then I talked to other officers and they're like, we don't know what the fuck he's talking about. We Like I talked to Don Schwert, the the. Springfield police patrol man who found her body. He actually found her. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, I don't remember anyone ever calling her party girl or pulling her. He's like, I don't remember anything like that. And then once I met Jeanette's family and began interviewing her sisters and her nephew and cousins, they were like, no, that was Gwen. They were two years apart, I think. And you've seen the photos in the book. They are dead ringers. They do. Mm -hmm. All the all the diploma girls do look very much alike. Yeah. It's almost like they're related or something, right? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. In the vein of people you spoke to, like you spoke to Jeanette's family, you found them to be pretty agreeable people. Yes, they they talked to you and they were eager to communicate about her case. I also want to ask you about uh, her friend, Gail. Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of information about like, you know, who Jeanette seem to have been and her whereabouts and her plans for that day specifically comes from this woman, Gail. Mm-hmm. Which also, by the way, we, we do have to close this thread out because we went off on a little tangent there with Robin because Robin comes in with the whole Gail story yes. too. But yeah, mm-hmm. we got that affidavit and for the first time we had something other than because the trail always ended, like I said, at the Bladis house and that's why everybody thought right. they must have had something to do with it. And the fact that her parents were kind of big wigs in town. Te- like Kish talks about it. He's like, Mr. Blattis was always having dinner with the cops in Mountainside, but Mountainside is a different police department. They yeah. they don't they don't just call up Springfield and go, don't look into this case. Bye. Like, <laughs> I mean, I hope they don't, but you know, it's 1972. You never know. Who the hell knows, right? But that's where that got legs. And then for the first time, like an actual, like, holy shit, this is a document. This isn't some like towny rumor like coming off. you know 50 years of hearsay this is from the week her body was found this young woman named robin um she asked that we don't use her last name because she is a law enforcement family which i I guess she just doesn't want to deal with any sort of drama or scrutiny but either way i'm sure she doesn't that's fine she said in this affidavit that she had read the newspaper about the body being found and realized oh my god i picked up a hitchhiker that day that they say this girl went missing. And she remembered that because she compulsively kept a calendar. So she went and checked her calendar. Sure enough, August 7th, picked up Hitchhiker at this intersection, dropped her off at Berkeley Heights. Which is exactly where she said she, she said was, she was gonna going to go. I'm going to hitchhike to Berkeley Heights to see my friend Gail and two boys that they had met at Echo Lake Park the weekend before. Gail told me that during our first interview in 2014. Because I said, why was she coming over just to hang out? I said, well, we had met two boys at Echo Lake Park the weekend before, and we made plans to hang out again. So not only does this affidavit from Robin uh, Robin say, oh, yeah, you know, she was leaving for um, Berkeley Heights, and I was driving her there. 
She also said that when she dropped her off at Berkeley Heights, there were three people waiting for her. Right. Two boys and a, and a girl, right? As best as she could tell, you know, and this it was is dark. Yeah, it was dark. And I when she said that to me, a chill ran up my spine because I was like, oh, my God, that really lines up with what Gail told me. And I made a point to ask her. I said, have you read my book? And she goes, I never even heard. She goes, don't take this the wrong way, sir. But I never even heard of you or your book until I got the email from you. Because her full name is in the affidavit and where she lived. And sure enough, she was on social media. So I reached out to her and said, you know, are you so-and-so who spoke to the police about this 50 years ago? She goes, my God, I haven't thought about that in so long. But yeah, that was me. And when I interviewed her on the phone, I had her affidavit in front of me from 49, at the time, 49 years prior. I made sure not to reference it or read it to her until I was done asking questions because I did not want to coach her. And it was amazing what she remembered. She remembered the intersections, all that she goes. You know, there was one thing that I did not mention to the cops, and it always bugged me that I never mentioned it to them. And I thought maybe I should call them back, but enough time had passed where I was like, I don't know if it's going to help anything. She goes, she had something around her neck like a pendant or a necklace, and she was fidgeting it with it the whole time. She goes, it may have been a cross or something like that. I'm like, holy shit, she was wearing that cross necklace that day. Which again, you know, a lot of people wore necklaces back then, but it's still, it's like another thing, like we can confirm she had that. Wow. And it it just blew my mind. And so it was like, okay, For all these years, Gail had told the police, not the media, because I was the first journalist to ever interview her. Mm -hmm. But for all these years, she had told me and the cops she never arrived. But what kind of, I don't know, I guess hindsight now is kind of weird. I asked her, I said, well, what did you do once it became clear that she wasn't going to show up? I don't really remember. I think I... I must have went to work or something. And I said, well, what about the two boys that were waiting there with you? Uh, I don't really remember. Well, what were their names? Oh, shoot. I don't really remember. Now, at the time, you know, I wasn't looking to accuse every single person I was interviewing. So I was just like, well, it was 40 something years ago. Of course, the poor woman doesn't remember. It's, you know, a long time. And I'm sure it's very traumatic. But then also kind of by the same token, it's like if I was hanging out with two people, even if I had just met them and that was the day my best friend went missing, I think I would remember their names from having to relive it in my head the whole time. Yeah. So now I have this piece of evidence where I'm like, holy shit, I have to re-interview Gail. I had not talked to Gail in several years. And this is why. When the book came out, the first edition of the book in 2015, I saw her on social media talking to uh, Jeanette's sister, Cindy, who is now deceased, um, saying, Cindy, don't read Jesse's book. Everything in it is a lie. I never said those things about you in it because, as you saw in the book, she talks about how, like, Cindy punched her at the train station because Cindy thought that Gail knew something more than what she was saying. And so I'm sitting there like, Are you fucking kidding me? I have you on tape saying these things. And that's why 
in the Devil's Teeth podcast, I use that shitty cell phone audio instead of hiring a voice actor. Because within the first week of that book coming out, I was getting people I interviewed trying to cover their ass. I guess they, when they said it in the moment, they didn't realize how harsh something sounded. And once they saw it in black and white, they were like, oh, fuck, I got to do damage control. Yeah. I'll throw the journalist under the bus. And so uh, th the podcast was honestly an insurance policy. For me, it's like, oh, Gail Donahue wants to go out there and, and tell Jeanette's family that I made up these things. Well, here, I'll just put the cell phone audio because I recorded all these phone calls because I wanted to quote people accurately. Mm -hmm. So that's so frustrating because it sounds so, you know, obviously it's not you making up that she said those things. But yeah, so now it's it's leading us to believe that she's like how much of what she told you did she make up? It threw everything she'd ever told me in doubt. Now that I had an affidavit from a woman who gave an identical physical description of Jeanette down to what she was wearing and the jewelry she had on and the location. And so it's like, I have to re-interview her. So I went in search uh, of her because, again, I hadn't spoken to her since she tried throwing me under the bus for what she said about Cindy in my book. And then I found out she had died a few months prior. I think she died in October and this was February. God. So three months or four months. Sorry. And the thing that pissed me off the most about it was this. The Union County Prosecutor's Office took from October 2019 to February 20 of 21 to get me that file. If they had gotten it to me a few months sooner instead of dragging their feet like they always do, I may have had a shot to even if she was on her deathbed to be like, Gail. I need to know if she made it to Berkeley Heights or not. Because now I've got a woman saying she dropped Jeanette there. And we'll never know. She took it to her grave. But I do know this from speaking to friends of hers and stuff. Um, she would call people in the middle of the night during the last decade of her life, freaking out, always having nightmares about Jeanette, saying that she was watching. She's like, I invited Jeanette over and she was coming over and someone kidnapped her and put her in a car in front of me and I couldn't help her. Yeah. And that is what makes me wonder if she witnessed something happen to her and then never talked about that again. And blocked it out with like alcohol and mm -hmm. other things. And she came from a prominent family that could have shielded her from the cops questioning her all the time. Her father worked for, I believe, the CIA. Now, I'm not saying the CIA had anything to do with this. No. I'm saying her father mm -hmm. had money and influence in town. And if, you know, a parent, uh, understandably, you know, is like, oh, my God, my daughter, my 16-year-old daughter could get caught up in this murder investigation. Like, no, you know, we're, we're not going to give any interviews. Like I said, Gail Donahue does not appear in any of the original newspaper coverage right. or even the original um, Weird New Jersey coverage. I got her name from Jeanette's family because I said all the newspapers say she was going to Berkeley Heights that day to meet a friend. Who was she going to see? Oh, Gail Donahue. I don't know if she's still alive. We, you know, they told me she was never at Jeanette's funeral. And that's when they started suspecting her of weird things. But Gail insisted she was. Who knows if she was or not? But the fact is, is there's so much that is now unanswered that there could have been a, a chance in hell at looking into if the cops hadn't played bullshit games yeah. for 10 years showing me these files. That's so rough. <sighs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like it's so frustrating. And, and I feel like reading your book, every time you got so close to something, 
something mm-hmm. else would happen. Even with uh, the serial killer, um, Richard Cottingham. Yeah. Like that whole thing. It's the torso killer comes into it too, <laughs> which is wild because that was like your big, that was huge, that reveal. And then I'm um, like, I have to wonder, and I ha- this is something I definitely wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. You spoke to him, which is scary. Um, yeah, a little. <laughs> there are a certain school of already incarcerated deep criminals mm-hmm. who will exchange bones for time, who yeah. will either admit to crimes they have committed or not in order to get advantages. Do you buy this guy? Do you think that he is being wholly sincere? Or do you think that perhaps he's just looking to get a leg up? The thing with Richard is this. He, from the get-go, basically made it known to me, like, I have to be very vague and very careful with the way that I say certain things to you because my emails and my phone calls and my letters are monitored. And he straight up told me right away. He was just like, I, I know that's got to drive you wild, but there's more eyes on a man in prison than you would believe. And honestly, Cottingham's name was brought up to Mark and I very early on. And just because people were like, oh, well, you know, he's a serial killer who lived in New Jersey at the time. Yeah, he mostly mm-hmm. operated in Manhattan. But have you ever considered him? And I did a little bit of cursory research and I was like, this guy is brutal. Yeah, no, he is intense. Like, and and of course, every murder is brutal. But Jeanette was not a bloody murder. Jeanette, if she was murdered, because I mean, of course, there is a possibility that, you know, maybe no one killed her. But I don't really take any stock in that. Maybe she had some sort of aneurysm up in a quarry and that was it. (laughs) Yeah, or she fell out of a fucking airplane that was passing by, I guess. I don't know. That's the thing. Like, for all these years, we were like, how the hell did she get in the woods? It's not a dumb job, but why would she would have been there? It was probably a ritual gone wrong. Probably. (laughs) Well, I do like the thought, and I believe you, you have this connected to Richard Cottingham, that perhaps she ducked out of his car and ran in there herself, hiding. Well, we got that from uh, Joan Kramer, because I did not really know about the Kramer case until a year or two into researching Jeanette's story, because at the time it was huge. It was a major story because she was the quote unquote kidnapped heiress. Uh, Her father owned like a very prominent meat packing company, I believe, in central Uh. New Jersey at the time. There was a lot of money in that family. And so when she went missing, they turned it into like, you know, almost like one of the royals has been taken, which understandably Joan's family and her friends hated because, you know, she was not like a Trump kid or, you know, uh, you know, the the royal princess or something. Her, Her dad just happened to be rich. But anyway, um, I found a newspaper article that talked about, um, the residents of Salem Road in Union, New Jersey, which is right across the way from the park, Elizabeth River Park, where Joan's body was later found, called the police several times on the night that Joan disappeared, saying, there's a car chasing a woman outside, and she's screaming. (gasps) So I was like, oh my God. Because that was the other thing, too. It's like, how the fuck did someone dump a body in Elizabeth River Park? Because I went there. And and I, I traversed the whole park. It's not huge, but it's big enough. But the first thing I realized, it's like, there's no way to back up a car to where her body was found. It's in the middle of a ball field, a baseball field. And it's literally like 
behind a Chinese restaurant. And when you go past the dumpster, it goes concave, like it dips down, like like maybe like a four foot incline and then levels out. So it's like, did a guy hoist a dead body over his shoulder and walk a quarter of a mile over to the river and dump her at the banks of it? Like, there's a lot of traffic on all sides of, of that area. Someone would have seen him. Yeah. And then suddenly when I read that article, I was like, holy shit, she bailed out of his car and he chased her down, strangled her on the spot and left her. Yeah. And that seems very, very probable. I Google earthed the drive from where Robin said she picked up Jeanette to where she mm -hmm. dropped her off. So I followed the whole little path and I like, you know, watched the whole little thing. And it, um, it, it's wooded. It's there. I mean, it's a pretty busy looking road, but it doesn't seem to be like there would be a lot of pedestrians around or anything. And no. if this was at nighttime when it's dark and the moon was in a very, I write this too, the moon was in a um, waning crescent, which is really small, which means there's not a lot of moonlight that night. It was mm -hmm. cloudy too. So it was very dark that night. If she had, you know, ducked out of a car and run into the woods, easily no one could have seen that. Easily. And it's dense. It, it is. Yeah. So, I, I have. I haven't been there at night, but I've been there um, as the sun was starting to set. Mm -hmm. And there are just a lot of trees where it gets really dark in there really quick. So it would have been. I won't. I don't want to say it would have been the perfect amount of cover because that was the other thing that I used to write off the whole dump job theory. I was like, "Who's gonna? How are you gonna fucking dump a body in there? There's no shoulder." You can't pull your car over and then, you know, ooh, let me pop the trunk in and walk a body in there. No one's ever going to see me. No, you have to pull over like in the grass on the side of the road if you're going to go in on the Mount View roadside. The only other alternative is, you know, I'll break into the Hudai Minerals Company property and back my car right up against the cliff. But the cliff is a 40 foot vertical cliff. What are you going to scale it like King Kong? It never made any sense for a dump job. But if Jeanette is in this guy's car and it's going down Mount View Road, say towards Shunpike to get to Route 22, where all the mo the no-tell motels were at the time that serial killers like Richard Cottingham admittedly like to frequent, she could have very quickly realized He's not bringing me to Berkeley Heights or or back home if she was coming from Berkeley Heights. You no, know. it gets woodsy really fast. I think it's, what is it, Glendale Road that goes up that way? And it's very dark. And it's like not, there's not homes, there's not nothing. It's just. She would have realized right away he's not bringing me where he said he is. Or maybe he could have said something to her that spooked her. But either way. She could have very easily bailed out of his car. He could have pulled over as quick as he could, ran in, mm -hmm. strangled her as quick as he could so there was no witness or whatever. Because whatever was done to her was done in a hurry. Her, mm -hmm. her clothes were not disturbed. She was not... We know for a fact she was not sexually molested. We know, or at least vaginally. Not to get too grim, but the FBI report on her clothing... Yeah. says that the only pubic hairs that they found in her underwear were her own. Right. Which is, I mean, a, a decent information, but she was, she was out there for a long time. For 72. So. It, it, mm -hmm. It's pretty, yeah. I was impressed by that because in 72, you know, people just go, oh, that's a body. It's dead. Take it away. Where are the DNA tests on her fingernails? Because they still have them. They do have those scrapings. Um, I don't mm -hmm. I, I don't know if they could get anything useful just because we don't know if anyone handled them without gloves. 
when they were collected and put into vials 50 years ago. And that's where touch DNA gets like a little, you know, if, the, if this had happened now, they could, of course, get elimination samples from everybody who had handled that. But, you know, most of these these dudes are dead. They'd have to yeah. exhume them or I don't know. I guess they could find family. But this is all expensive and time consuming. And Springfield doesn't want to blow money on that. Yeah. See, to me, it just feels like there are things you can do. You can do that. 100%. It may not always turn up something, but you can try. But the thing that was interesting with Cottingham was, again, his stuff was so brutal that I really didn't take it seriously for several years. And it wasn't until the news broke that he had confessed to uh, killing Denise Falaska and Irene Blaze that my ears perked up because those two young women who were killed in 1969 bore an intense physical resemblance to Jeanette Palma, as as do all of these girls in yeah. this case. There is a definite type between Denise, Irene, Jeanette, Joan, and Marianne Pryor and Lorraine Kelly in North Bergen. Yeah. They are all petite. They're under 5'5", five, five, thin, long, dark hair, straight, parted in the middle. There, It is a type. And so when I found those two unsolved murders back in 2013, I was originally going to cover them in the book, but I interviewed Denise's sister, Karen, and I basically told her my theory. And at the time, my working theory was it was Nilsson that did it. And she goes, oh, I don't, I, I'm sorry, I, I have my own theory about this. And I, I appreciate the work you've done um, looking into my sister's case, but I, I just don't buy it. And she goes, good luck. And I was like, well, I don't want to be the dude that writes a book saying I think the sister's misguided for not believing in this. So I kind of let it be. And it was easy to let it be because there wasn't a lot of information about those two cases. So kind of kept them in the back of my head, but they didn't make it into the book. But then all of a sudden, Richard Cottingham confesses to the two of them. And I'm like, okay. He just admitted to two murders that are almost identical. I mean, mm -hmm. those two girls, they, they even had the gold um, uh, crucifix necklace, just like Jeanette did, strangled, left face down in a wooded area, that whole thing. I'm like, holy shit. So I was like, I have to go into the belly of the beast and talk to this guy. And luckily, I had an introduction because I know Dr. Peter Vronsky, who has been interviewing Cottingham for years for a series of books, and he goes, I'm not really sure if if Jeanette was, you know, his type or not. I mean, it, it's just really not that brutal. And I'm like, I thought the same, but I, I can't not look into this. Well, escalation is also a thing. Like, oh, of course. And, and that's why I always thought that um, the girls in North Bergen had something to do with this, too, because it seemed like, yeah, those murders were more brutal but there still seemed to be some of that signature there, not just the physical resemblance, but the whole dumping them face down or leaving them face down. At least none of these girls are ever left face up except for Carol Ann Farino, um, a, a young lady who was killed in Maplewood in 1966. But honestly, she was only brought into the equation because people suspected of Nilsen, they suspected Nilsen of killing her. So Nilsen's not on my radar anymore. I could go either way there. But, um, you know, all these other things, it's like there's such a through line here. There might be something. So Vronsky gives me the introduction to this guy. And right away, he tells me, you know, again, I, I, I'll try and answer your questions as best I can. But I have to be very vague because the eyes that are on me. So I made sure not to coach him. I said, I'm looking into this girl. 
she was found dead in the woods uh, across the street from a golf course in Union County, not far from Route 22. Uh, she was found on a hill and left it at that. And he goes, what you're describing sounds very familiar to me. I, you know, was very active in Union County near Route 22 at that time in 1972. And I knew enough about Cunningham to go, holy shit, he is never admitted before to being active in in this part of of New Jersey at this time. He's never talked about it at all. So, of course, I went back to Vronsky and another researcher who was familiar with Cunningham, and I said, is is this guy a Henry Lee Lucas? Is he just saying yes to everything? Yeah. And they said, no, it's actually quite the opposite. He fucking hates confessing to anything. And I'm like, why? All right. And and they they said, this is going to sound really stupid, but he is super embarrassed that he got caught. His family understandably um cut him off after he got arrested for being you know that whole serial killer thing and um his whole thing when he confesses is i don't want to go to trial i will confess on paper only uh, if this stays out of a courtroom because he's afraid of the families mm. he is ashamed of the fa- like if you look into the coverage of the uh marianne Pryor and lorraine kelly case which by the way he confessed to in the middle of me interviewing him not not to me, but during the time that I was talking to him every week, he confessed to the cops. And that's what cemented it for me. I was like, I have always felt that whoever killed Pryor and Kelly also killed De Palma. And here it is. Mm. The guy I'm interviewing about De Palma goes and confesses to them. And they accepted it. They were like, he told us stuff that is not public. There's stuff that he knows that wasn't even in the case files. So, you know, they're like, yeah, no, he he doesn't do that. He is embarrassed that he's a serial killer. He doesn't want to face the families. And sure enough, once we got further into it, after he looked at pictures of her and said, she's definitely my type Mm -hmm. and gave him some more information. They said, this sounds familiar. I basically said, okay, well, we've come as far as we can go. I've got to hand this over to Union County. How can I make that happen? And he said to me the same thing with all the other ones. You know, um, I'll talk to them, but my terms is this does not go into a courtroom. And that's why Ray is on the phone call with me in the episode of Devil's Teeth, because I was like, I was like, Ray, if you want this guy to confess, you're not going to get your day in court with him. And he was like, I'm fine with that. I just want answers. So that's interesting because he did have like an established friendship with the daughter of one of his victims. She's like one of the people that helped garner those confessions, I thought. I don't have her name right here, but like Uh... he he did. (laughs) I mean. She definitely did talk. I mean, there's pictures of her with him. There is like a lot of politics with that right now. The daughter, Jennifer Weiss. That's um, her name, yeah. She insists, I'm the one that convinced him to give these confessions to the police. And I may even be his secret daughter. And Oh, yeah, I saw that. I saw all this. And now here's the thing. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't mm. matter who got him. Let the cop have it or whatever. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. It is interesting that he had such an aversion to families, and yet he did see one of the family members because she definitely did see him. I wonder what was different about that. Uh, I I asked Dr. Vronsky about that, and uh, he basically put it this way. Cottingham enjoys the attention of young pretty women. Okay. I mean, fair enough. That could could be all there is to it. That's his opinion. Like, I I never talked to Cottingham about Mm -hmm. it. I don't know what dynamics are at play there i know that there is a lot of confrontation and and controversy regarding 
if she's responsible for these confessions or if it's Rob Anzalotti. Of course, Anzalotti yeah. says it's him. She says it's her. Vronsky says they both can take the credit. Who knows? <laughs> that's such a that so doesn't affect anything. OK, who wants the medal for it? That's fine. Well, they, they're from what I understand, both uh, Weiss and Anzalotti are trying to parlay this into television careers, which I have no interest in. So that if that's their their end game, it's whatever. Like, for, and, and I told Vronsky this, too. I said, don't think like I'm trying to step on your toes or anything, because I know you're writing like what's going to be the definitive Cottingham book. It's like. I don't care. Like he would always like go on these tangents, kind of like why the way I am right now, like trying to give me the whole history of him. And I'm like, dude, like there's no nice way to say this. I'm not, I don't care. I'm not trying to be a Cottingham historian. I just want to know if he killed this young woman that I have been trying to find answers about for 10 years. So as far as I know, the prosecutor's office have done nothing with that information. I sent them the, all of the emails, The family was on the phone with me and said, we are fine with his terms. Just tell us what the hell's going on. They've done nothing. Like a month afterward, the dude collapsed in his jail cell and they basically brought him to the hospital wing and said he's not going to make it. By some miracle, he did. But they said he's not going to make it. I contacted the prosecutor's office again and said, listen, this guy's probably going to die. You need to do something. And they did nothing. He's in Bridgeton, not far from us. Yeah, and that's the weird thing. that That is where I do have that little bit of doubt because that's the one thing that Cottingham being responsible doesn't answer. It doesn't answer why the police have been so cagey about talking about this, why it took a decade to get the files out of them, why they won't even talk to him. It's weird. You would think like that would be like the easiest out. Like, oh, holy shit, this guy brought us a confession from a serial killer. Let's just go talk to him. Get get the paperwork signed, and then we don't have to deal with this anymore. No more mm. newspapers. No more Information Act requests from Jesse Pollock and Mark Moran. Here's the thing about that. It's not as common in America, but in other countries, they will deny they even have serial killers because they don't want to admit that something like that could be happening within the confines of their walls. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know what the attitudes were like in 1972 Union County, but I mean, there's always the possibility that they were like, oh, we don't want to admit that this happened here because then it'll be mass hysteria. Oh, there, there's none of that. I, I know the, the verbiage serial killer was not created by uh, Robert Ressler yet. 1980, I guess that was. Yeah. Yeah. But even like multiple murderer or or psycho killer, like the things they refer you to. You don't uh, want that in your backyard, man. You know, well, none of that is even like it's not even presented as a possibility in the newspaper coverage. And I mean, the newspapers were they were definitely reporting on the fact that it was multiple women in the same week in the same area. Mm. So much so that the union County prosecutor's office created a special telephone tip line devoted just to Jeanette and Joan. And they advertised it in the newspaper saying, Hey, the union County prosecutor's office thinks there's a good chance that these two young women were killed by the same person. But that is the closest that any of that coverage back then came to admitting there's a possible serial killer on the loose or a multiple murderer or or a compulsion killer, whatever you wanted to call it back then. That's interesting. So then in closing, I don't know if you're even going to be able to answer this, but we have to ask. Sure. What after spending the better part of a decade immersed in this case and getting to know Jeanette probably better than most living people 
know her at all right now. What do you think happened? If it wasn't Cottingham, I would probably defer back to, well, it's possibly Nilsson. Because, you know, if if the prosecutors in Essex, in Essex County got it right the first time that he killed Joan Kramer, that's a hell of a coincidence. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but, mm-hmm. you know, six days after Jeanette disappears, a girl six miles away is taken the same way, hitchhiking, same, you know, physical description, and also is found dead, strangled face down in uh in Union County with in, in a wooded area with a necklace missing. I mean, it all reeks of uh, the same killer, a trophy killer with the same MO, the same body type. And I don't know if he's like deliberately leaving them face down as placing them, but he's definitely not making an effort to bury them or burn them, which again is why I kind of discounted Cottingham at first. He burned- I mean, yeah. Burn the rooms. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Don't get more intense than that. But if it wasn't, there's just too much that Cottingham could have used as an out. Now, of course, this is all with the caveat, like, well, was he being sincere with you? But, you know, I could have said to him, like, an out could have been, hey, this was, you know, uh, this girl was left on top of a hill across mm-hmm. from a golf course. And he could have said, oh, no, you know, I-, I never left any on any hills, which he didn't. There are no other girls that he did that were left on mountains. So he could have said no there. Or, you know, again, he could have said, no, I, I didn't operate in Union County. The opposite was, he admits to me, like, I was very active in Union County during the summer mm. of 72. Guess what? There are only two unsolved homicides in the summer of 72 in Union County. Jeanette Palma and Joan Kramer. Two young women who happened to have the exact same MOs to their murders. So he had a million different opportunities where he could have said, nah, that wasn't me. Or nah, I wasn't strangling back then. You know, I was stabbing back then. Or, you know, he could have said, uh, I I didn't go anywhere near Berkeley Heights. That wasn't really my thing. Like he had so many opportunities to give me something where it's like, well, this doesn't fit. But every single time it was like, yeah, that sounds really familiar if you catch my drift. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I was very active back then if you catch my drift. And when I said to him, would you get in a room and confess to this? Yes, but I want a steak dinner and I don't want to do it here because if they see me talking to cops here, I'll get beaten up. I'm in a wheelchair. Sounds pretty damn reasonable. There was no real Hannibal Lecter quid pro quo there. So in the light of all the research I've done in 10 years, I have not found anything to discount this guy other than well, it doesn't really explain the police cover-up, but every other crime writer I discuss that fine point with, they go, cops are dumb and they're stubborn. They'll never admit they were wrong, and they have to admit they're wrong if if they want to work with you in any way. So mm. I, I, it would take a lot for me to think it was someone other than Cottingham. And if it wasn't him, I'd probably defer back to Nelson. Okay. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, well... We didn't even know if we'd get you to answer that one. (laughs) I mean, it's still an I don't know, but I do have a lot of faith in what he told me. (laughs) So I do have one more question for you. Sure. With your experience at uh, Weird New Jersey, (laughs) do you like hang out with the Jersey Devil? Uh, no, he's, he's got agoraphobia, so he sticks mainly to social media, not, you know, especially with COVID and everything. He was just like, dude, like, I can't risk it. I can't fit a mask over my snout. I hope you understand. 
All those birth defects, these immunocompromised. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So, me, so me and JD just keep to tweets. Love it. All right. <laughs> well, Jesse, I can't thank you enough for coming and talking to us today. Um, we'll make sure we have links for your podcast mm-hmm. and the book. Yeah. So can that... you tell people where they can find you? Uh, yeah. Like all um, your stuff. You, you can uh, follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at J Pollock author. That's J P O L L A C K author. And um, we just wrapped up the devil's teeth podcast um, after seven years of reporting on this case. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so you can find that um, wherever podcasts are available. The social for that is at devil's teeth pod on Twitter. And um, if you want some, I guess a little more lighthearted true crime podcasting material. Um, I co-host a podcast called Podcast 1289 where me and my friends just rip apart the dumbest true crime and UFO and ghost stories in the world. And then there's also, we're on a bit of a hiatus right now, but we are coming back, the True Crime Movie Club podcast where we get together and watch like the worst bottom of the barrel true crime movies we can find. And again, just tear them apart on our show. So- If you want something a little less sad and frustrating and dour than what we've talked about today, those are a good palate cleanser. But I will warn you, they're very not safe for work because most of us are Jersey guys that cannot control our mouths. (laughs) Well, our (laughs) listeners hear us swear all the time, so it's fine. Excellent. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank Uh, you so much. This was enlightening, and uh, we enjoyed reading both your books and listening to the podcast. And we're just so appreciative for your time today. And thanks for having me. This was easily my favorite interview that I've done on this case so far because you actually did your homework. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. But yeah, I I know we got less than a minute before it cuts us off. But let's let's do this again sometime. Let's do some crossover podcasting episodes or lighthearted stuff. (laughs) That sounds awesome. Stay in touch. We'd love to do that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jesse. Have a great day. All right, fiends. Well, we hope you enjoyed our interview with Jesse. Yeah. Um, wow, that was. I know. And uh, just come to the Facebook groups or on Patreon or on Instagram, or you can email us or however you want to if you want to continue Send talking. Carrier pigeon, even though yeah. they're extinct. Whatever you need to do. Yeah. Uh, I hope to, that we get to discuss this a little more with some of you guys because um, I'm sure that you have theories, questions, mm-hmm. comments, compliments, the whole nine. Yeah. Um, and I'll see if I can open a dialogue with Jesse with you guys in case any of you yeah. have questions. Yeah, because we had, you know, we had a few more questions we wanted to get into with him. And mm-hmm. so um, I'm sure he would love to connect with people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, well, guys. until next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.